I want to tag this text this morning after a popular song in the 80s, The Man in the Mirror. I figured you knew who I was talking about. Friends, it would be August 31st, 1987, when Michael Jackson would release the song, Man in the Mirror. I know you're in church. Don't act like you don't know who Michael is. I'm talking about moonwalking Michael Jackson. I'm talking about the king of pop. Matter of fact, his childhood house is around the corner from this church. The song Man in the Mirror peaked at number one on the billboards for two weeks. Michael sold over a million CDs. And who would have ever thought that mankind would be so interested in a song that requested us to take a hard look at ourselves. This song was written so that you and I would slow down and take a hard look, a conscientious look at ourselves. The song goes a little bit like this. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. I ought to sing this thing. <laughs> I ought to sing it like I mean it, huh? No, I'm just saying. That was, that was kind of good. And no, <laughs> you got me with that one, Jatika. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. In other words, the real change that is needed is not somewhere out there in the world. It is not somewhere out there in the cosmos. But the real necessary needed change needs to take place with the man in the mirror. I feel like preaching this morning. I come to find out after studying Romans chapter 2 that Michael Jackson owes the Apostle Paul some money. Uh, come to find out that Michael Jackson must have stole this idea from the Apostle Paul for mankind to deal with the man in the mirror. If you have been following it along these past few weeks, Paul has made a drastic shift in his terminology. In chapter 1, he uses the word they as he is referring to the depravity out there in the world. They, 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 they. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them up. They were filled with unrighteousness. But now Paul, in chapter 2, replaces they with you. He replaces they with you. Therefore, right in the opening gates of chapter 2, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. It is as if in chapter 1, Paul opens up a window so that we can see the depravity of the world. And then in chapter 2, Paul takes a mirror and turns it towards his readers and say, Do you see the depravity in your own heart? These past weeks, we have been looking at the man in the mirror. We have been looking at the man in the mirror and I'm sure these have not been easy weeks. I believe the hardest person 
to face in life is yourself. The hardest person to face in life is yourself. And you would think that Paul would take a chill pill at this point. But Paul digs even deeper into our hearts in these final verses in chapter 2. Paul needs his readers, he needs you and I to see who we really are in these final verses in chapter 2. Paul needs his readers to see themselves for who they truly are in these final verses. Paul desires for us to be saved from the wrath of God to come, but because his readers have a false perception of themselves. They believe on the basis of false security that they will escape the wrath of God. They think because of some self-righteous no, no, a notion that they will escape the wrath of God. Paul really comes at about three basic reasons that they believe that they will escape the wrath of God. And because they have this false perception, they have concluded that they don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imagine that, a group of people that believe that we don't need the righteousness of Jesus. We are righteous within ourselves. Of course, Paul is addressing the Jew, but in a very real sense, Paul is addressing all of us this morning. Paul lands us here by articulating that nationality cannot save us from the wrath of God. I'm going to say that again because I know that landed hard on some of you. I know you think you're cute and your nationality is all of that, but Paul wants to articulate to you this morning that nationality cannot save us from the wrath of God. You got your Bibles? Go to Romans chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 17, and we're going to finish chapter 2 by the time I'm done. I should be done in three hours. Chris, like he for real. When you're there, say amen. amen. If you're not there, say wait a minute. Good, because we've been in Romans too long for y'all not to know where it is by now. <laughs> when we get to verse 17, Paul is having a Simba and Rafiki moment from Lion King. And maybe you recall the movie this morning. When Rafiki takes Simba to the water to see his reflection, Simba becomes frustrated. Why? Because he doesn't see what he's looking for. But that wise old bamboo monkey instructs Simba to do what? Look harder. Literally, the verse begins, now if you call yourself a Jew. Now I want you to pay close attention to that phrase. Paul could have called them Hebrews. And the word Hebrew basically indicates their language. He could have called them Israelites. That basically indicates their land, the land in which they live. But he wants them to look harder. So he calls them by their nationality. He calls them Jews. Paul, why would you call them Jews? Because Jews spoke of their nationality and race and heritage. Paul is getting at the core of their identity. He's getting to the basis of their justification. He's touching them in the most sensitive spot that they can be touched. He called them Jews. This was a place of pride for them. I love the way that John MacArthur says it. He says there is pride in their language. Indeed, there is pride in their land. 
But there is a particular pride in their nationality. It spoke of their distinctiveness from all other nations, from all the Gentiles. It was the mark of their uniqueness to be Jew. There might be other people in the land. and There may be other people that spoke the language. But a Jew was the unique people of God. And so it became a title of honor. It designated them as the special people of God. The word even comes from a Hebrew root meaning praise. I know some of you wish somebody would praise you this morning, but it's not going to happen. They were named praise because of the tremendous privilege that they had. And indeed, it was a privilege. They felt they were better than everybody else because they were Jewish. To be Jewish meant something. Every Jew knew in respect to truth, he was privileged far above everyone else. We are Jewish. No one knows God like us. No one has access to God like us. No one is loved by God like us. You do remember the Red Sea when Pharaoh was oppressing them and making them make brick out of no straw. Who showed up did no other than Yahweh himself. He spreads the Red Sea. The Jews come on the other side. But what's waiting for them on the other side? Then the God of heaven rains down wonder bread. Imagine that. Wonder bread from heaven comes down. Down. And then I started to shout and praise God myself until he sent them a turkey sandwich. God rained down quail from heaven. I said, now that's all right, and that's all that. But in then I found out, now this is something, you know, I said, God, if you can do this for my shoes and cause them not to fall apart for 40 years, I may buy me a pair of Jordans because them things are expensive. And if I'm going to spend $300 at them, I'm going to need to make sure they last at least 40 years. And and you can kind of see why the Jewish people felt that God was really all about them and they were all that in a bag of chips. You do know what all that in a bag of chips mean. You guys heard that before. What is fundamentally wrong here, though? God didn't call them so that they can make much of their nationality. God called them so that they can make much of him. Church, you better be careful. Not to get so caught up in your nationality that it becomes your boast instead of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be proud of how God made us. Shoot, I'm proud to be a chocolate brother. And I love my nationality and I love my culture. But we will never reach the world with a gospel that says that we are better than everybody else because of our nationality. That is anti-gospel. Now it is easy for us to say, oh, no, I would never think that way, but I would encourage all of us to look harder. The Jewish people had such pride in their nationality that they even put God into debt. Imagine that. The God who formed them and created them. When God found that the Jewish people, he called a man by the name of Abram. Abram wasn't thinking about God. Abram was worshiping idols and God calls Abram and makes him into a nation. And now that they've all, they found all these things out about God, they think that they got God in debt. 
The Jewish people did math like this. Jew equals the favor of God. Jew equals the favor of God. What did this mean for them? Because we are Jewish, we are above the law. Because we are Jewish, we can live how we want and never face final condemnation and never really face ultimate judgment. Because we are justified, watch this, you don't want to miss this. If you miss this, you're going to miss everything. Because we are Jewish, we are justified on the basis of that. So their nationality became the basis of their righteousness. It became the basis of their justification. We see a glimpse of this in Micah chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, It's not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster shall come upon us. Do you see it? We can bribe, we can lie, we can cheat and work for dishonest gain, but nothing will happen to us because the Lord is on our side. Why? Because we are Jewish. Therefore, we don't need a bloody Savior. We don't need a cross. We don't need imputed righteousness. We don't need anything but our nationality. You know God is on the side of the Jewish people, right? Can everybody tell? Can you see the amount of light and revelation he has given us? Why would he give us so much understanding of him if he is not on our side? If God is not for me, why would he allow me to understand who he is? This is what Paul picks up in verse 17. Revelation does not equal salvation. Revelation does not equal salvation. Listen up, church people. Revelation does not equal salvation. Look at verse 17 again. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, <coughs> a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul essentially in these verses lists five more reasons for their pride and elitism in their revelation or being above God's judgment, or their feeling of, we don't need Christ's righteousness. Number one, they felt they were above judgment because they possessed the law. The Jews are like, we got the Bible, we're good. Now note that they're not bragging because they are actually practicing the law. They're bragging just because they possess the law. Number two, they felt they were above judgment because they were God's favorite. It's like that irritating kid in class who the principal likes and the teacher likes, but he's a snake in the background, and he uses that for his advantage. Number three, they felt they were above judgment 
Because they knew God's revealed will. The Jewish people could rattle off the Ten Commandments. When they were young, they had to learn the entire Torah. They knew the word of God, and they can rattle off truth in a heartbeat. Number four, they felt they were above judgment because they can discern right from wrong. We don't need anybody teaching us. God is our teacher. We know light from darkness. We know good from bad. We know this thing. We don't need anybody to check us. We know what we're talking about. Number five, they felt they were above judgment because they were instructed in the law. And I want to slow down here. In verse 18, Paul uses the word instructed. Now, the Greek word for this is katako. We get a word from that word called catechism or catechize. It means to be taught something orally. They had been catechized out of God's law. And as a result of the catechizing, the oral instruction they had learned in the home and also in the synagogue, they knew God's law. They knew God's will. But what is the issue? The issue is not what they knew in their heads. The issue is that what's in their heads is not in their hearts. In church, that makes all of the difference. You can know a lot about God in your head and not know him in your heart. You can get into church and never get into God. You can be around Christians and never truly know God. You can be lifting your hands and praising God all you want and yet not know him. The issue is that they had a whole lot of theology, but they didn't have a whole lot of practicing of that theology. So my homeboy Paul sees this Jew, okay, revelation, okay. So Paul says, stands back and say, okay, hold up. Let me get this right. You boast in the light and the revelation you have, right? And they would say, mm-hmm. And Paul would say, okay, so you can break down justification, propitiation, sanctification, glorification, eschatology, ecclesiology, anthropology, and you can exegete the text in an aerodynamic way that you can expound upon the pericope. Do I got that right? And they would say, mm-hmm. Hold on, because I don't want to be slipping and tripping and accusing anybody. So Paul presses in a little bit more. In other words, the Gentiles have a flashlight, and you have the S-U-N, and you think because you have more light and more revelation, you are better off, although you don't use light to do right? Oh, I could build on that. That was a little poetic, that one. I could, I could, I could, I could, I could make something out of that. So you got all this revelation in light, but you don't use light to do right. Instead, you use it to justify the wrong that you're doing. Do I got this right? Paul says, do you not know more revelation could mean more condemnation? As Pastor Steve brought out last week. You know, to the Hebrew, true wisdom is to do what, what you know to be true. But to the Greek, wisdom was just to know. But to the Hebrew, wisdom was to do. And when we don't do what we know to be right or true, we are acting as fools. Oh, how easy it is to look down on the Jewish people this morning. But the blade cuts both ways. 
we are just as guilty. And many of us who attend church and Bible study think because we know truth, we are good. But if you don't do, you don't know as you ought to know. Just watch what you believe and what you do. And when they contradict each other, there's an issue in your heart. We could easily think here in America, here in our, here in our comfortable chairs, in our comfortable churches, because we have good teaching and we go to a, a church that teaches the Bible, we got great seminaries, you got five translations on your bookshelf that you're good. It's easy for me to think because I'm graduating from Moody that I'm good with God. That is false security. There is no security in that. What happens, church, when the people in the pews, those who have the knowledge of God, live like they don't know God? I'm talking about the super Christians. I'm talking about the pastors, the teachers. Those who were in Sunday school all your life, what happens when your orthodoxy does not convert into orthopraxy? Let me see if I can say that another way. Don't just talk about it. Be about it. Now, that may have missed some of the young folks, so let me do it another way. There's a song out that said, walk it like I, come on. I figured you all to know what that was. Our orthodoxy does not convert into orthopraxy. We get what Paul writes in verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Feel the weight of that, church. Do not let those two verses pass you by. God is dishonored when his people, or who claim to be his people, do not walk with, in, in light of the truth that they know. We become the greatest workers of darkness than anyone. Those who are meant to be light become tools in the hands of Satan, and that's not cool. Being Jewish... Being Caucasian, being African-American, Latino, Latinx, hopefully I got that right, Spaniard, Asian, with more revelation does not mean you belong to God. Just because you have pride in your nationality and you know a few scriptures, it does not mean that you belong to God. Nationality and revelation do not save us. Now watch how they are building a false perception of self-justification. First, it is because we are Jew. We don't need Jesus. And in fact, we know God is on our side. We know that God favors us because he has given us right revelation of himself. But Paul is a smart man, and he sees the next argument that is coming. He knows that they're going to bring up something else in regards to their self-justification, and he brings up circumcision. That's something to boast about in, right? 
and try to summarize this. I figure you appreciate that. Association doesn't equal salvation. Association doesn't equal salvation. Watch what Paul does in the next verses. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? You read that? I don't know what he's talking about. I have no clue. Took me a while to figure it out. I'm trying to explain the best I can. All right, so things that we need to understand. Circumcision became the unique mark of the Jew. On the eighth day after the male child was born, he was circumcised. That was an indication of the child being set apart to the special covenant relationship with God in his people. It was very, very important. It was so important. Check this out. This is crazy. The Bible is sometimes ruthless. God was going to kill Moses for not having his son circumcised. That's, that's not how you want to die. That's not how you want to go out, right? You don't want to get to heaven. Why, are, why did you die? Because I didn't circumcise my son. That, I, I, I just don't want to go down like that. It was the sign of God's promise. Circumcision was the sign of God's blessing. It was the sign of God's protection and care in love. It was like the exchanging of wedding rings, a symbol of the covenant. But it didn't mean anything if you did not keep the law. This is what Paul says in Galatians 5. I testify to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the law. They thought this outward symbol associated them as God's people. So much so that in some Jewish writings, you find things like this. No circumcised man shall see hell. As Ken Hughes says, but what good is a wedding ring on the finger of an adulterer? It is not the ring that makes you faithful. It is not the ring that makes you a faithful husband or wife, but it is being faithful that makes you faithful. When the man or woman without the wedding ring, lives faithful, they are condemning the one with the wedding ring that are not faithful, showing that true faithfulness is a matter of the heart, not outward symbols. And in a similar way, when those who are not circumcised obey the law, they condemn those who are circumcised who do not obey the law. The issue with most of the Jewish people in chapter 2 is that they are actively cheating on God, but saying, I didn't take my wedding ring off while I was doing it. Imagine that. The husband comes home to the wife. She finds out he was cheating, and he tells her, I didn't take my wedding ring off while I was doing it. You better duck. You better duck because a hand, a shoe, something's coming. This is the silliest argument, right? This is the argument that they're making. 
We're doing whatever we want. But I didn't take my ring off. God, I still associated myself with you and your people. We're good, right? In other words, we can cheat all we want as long as we don't remove our wedding ring. We do it all the time, right? We live however we want. We do what we want. Oh, yeah, we come to church. Oh, yeah, we pay our tithes. Oh, yeah, we read our word. But the Bible has no weight in my life. Jesus has no weight in my life. I got you to come to church, but I ain't got your heart. You gave me your offering, but you didn't give me yourself. We do it all the time. God, of course I love you. People come up, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm Baptist. I'm Reformed. I'm just pointing to my ring, but I'm doing whatever I want. Here's the question. It is not, are you coming to church? It is not, are you reading your Bible? It is not, did you open the door for the elderly? The question becomes, does God have your heart? What does it matter, husband? What does it matter, wife? If I don't have your heart, I don't care if you have that ring on. I don't have your heart. What do they want to know? Do you love me? Do you love me? I don't care about you having a ring on. If I don't have your heart, that's what I want. This is what God desires of us. And Paul is saying, you have all this knowledge. You have all this revelation. What should you do with the light that you have, church? What should you do with the revelation that you have? Look harder in the mirror, Simba. Look harder in the mirror, Simba. Revelation calls for investigation of our own hearts. This is what Paul picks up in verse 21. And you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is like, take all of that light and revelation you have and put it to good use by examining the man in the mirror. I know you can see clearly that the world is jacked up, but can you see clearly that you are jacked up? Paul, in essence, is saying God has given you a mirror to deal with the man in the mirror. God has given you a mirror to deal with the man in the mirror. You see, those of us that have truth, we have a mirror. And to have a mirror is to have an advantage. What mirror you say? I brought James, my boy, from the New Testament to help me out. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in, in, a, in, in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. The word of God is our mirror, church. 
We don't have that excuse of little David in the third grade class. Little David came home from third grade art class with this report. They told us, Mommy, to draw ourselves. He said, but without a mirror. I ended up drawing a total stranger. Oh, no, 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 church. We don't have that excuse. God has given us a mirror. If anyone knows themselves, it ought to be the people of God. It ought to be the church of God. Why? Because the word of God instructs us. We know what lying is. We know what cheating is. We know what adultery is. We know what idolatry is. We know what greed is. Why? Because our Father has told us what they are. And I'm asking you this morning to take a hard look in the mirror. To take a hard look at your own heart. You know there comes a time church. When we need to do an investigation on our own hearts. When we need to do an examination of our own adherence to the truth. Because your own heart will either indict you as illegitimate or it will validate you as the genuine article. This is where Paul lands us. A change hard is the true evidence of salvation. A change hard is the true evidence of salvation. This is what he says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. True salvation is not outward religion, but new life that comes from a new heart by the Spirit. I love the way Jesus puts it, and I know a lot of you think Jesus is cute, and he's just feathery, and he's always saying nice things. Jesus wouldn't cut nobody. Jesus wouldn't say anything mean to nobody. But when I read the Gospels, I see a Jesus that'll cut you where you need to be cut. And so I brought some evidence just in case you didn't believe me. This is what Jesus said, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Hypocrites. Jesus said that. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I figured that one may have went over your heads, and so I brought another one. You blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup in the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is saying, yeah, you take care of the outside. You clean the outside of the cup because it looks pretty. It's all about on the outside. You want people to look at you on a good way. And, and you come to church, and you look cute, and you got your Sunday best on. Oh, yes, I fasted all week. I didn't eat all week. All I did was commune with God. You know I don't hang around human beings. I only hang around angels. My best friends are Gabriel and Michael the Archangel. I never touch anything unclean. Oh, I love 
love the Lord. I love you. I love the church. I give half of my paycheck. I do this and I do. And when you get to know them, they, they're mean. They're hateful. They can't stand nobody. They won't give to nobody. Their entire life is about them. And if you step on their toe, if you cut them off in traffic, they're ready to cuss you out. They don't want to give to the poor. They talking about, I love the Lord. Oh, I love Jesus. You ain't got no fruit on your tree. All we see is death, but you can come and look cute all you want. But when it comes to God, there is no hide or go seek. God says, oh, I see you. I see you for who you are. I see you when you're at home by yourself. I seen that car ride to church with your wife or your husband. Uh-oh. I see how you treat your co-workers. I see you. You can clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is jacked up. Church, we got to be careful that we just don't consider the outside of the cup, but what's on the inside of it? That's who you really are. Is the inside of your cup clean? I guess the question becomes, Dexia, how do I get the heart clean? How do I get a new heart? Church, we cannot do this on our own. We have neither the will or the power to do so. It is by the Spirit. Our religion can be accomplished by man because it doesn't require us to change our hearts. Anybody can do the outward stuff, but only God can do the inward stuff. Neither can the outside save us. God will judge our hearts, not our outward performance, not our nationality or what we knew in our heads, but what we did with the truth that he gave us. And this is where the gospel is so important. Because it reminds us we need a Savior. Until you understand how wretched you are, how jacked up you are, how messed up you are. I don't know about you, but when God found Dexter Harris, I was a jacked up, messed up, doing my own thing kind of guy. And Jesus dove into the dumpster and pulled this wretched soul out and cleansed me up. I call that grace. You can never sing high enough. You can never sing clear enough until you understand how messed up you are. This is why we sing, they stretched him high. They hung him wide. And for you and me, he what? He died on my behalf. We need a new heart. Religion cannot give us a new heart. Now, I want to be clear here. It is not a new heart that saves us. But the new heart is proof that we are saved. Just as evidence does not make you a bank robber, it proves that you robbed the bank. You were a robber way before. The evidence of salvation is a new heart. A new heart is proof that Jesus lives in us. Well, you say, Dex, how do I know Jesus lives in me? If I can go back to Lion King for a minute, 
when Rafiki tells Simba to look harder at his reflection, it is not so that Simba can see, it, it is so that Simba can see what lives on the inside. Simba was too busy being fixated on what was on the outside. And that old bamboo monkey tells Simba, I need you to look harder. And when Simba looks back at his reflection, he finds out something is living on the inside of him. He finds out that his father is on the inside of him. And so when Simba goes back to the water, he sees his father looking back at him. Church, I came to tell you this morning, if Jesus is on the inside, when you look in the mirror, you ought to see traces of his love. You ought to see traces of his patience. You ought to see traces of his goodness. You ought to see traces of who he is so that when people ask you, why do you love your neighbor as yourself? When people ask you, why do we love each other over economic and racial lines? You tell them because the king lives in me. When they ask you, how can you go through all hell and keep such peace? You tell them because he lives in the inside of me when all things are going crazy when your job and your boss is mistreating you and they see extreme patience and they sit and they wonder and they look at you baffled and confused and they say where did that peace come from where did that joy come from you tell them it is because Christ lives in me and church we have to look harder because what is on the inside is who I really am it is not what you see on the outside it's what you see on the inside. And when Jesus gets down on the inside, I hear the words of the Corinthian church when Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. The new, the new is here. When Jesus gets on the inside of us, the hope of glory. He does a work. He starts cleaning out that junk and that mess and that old man begins to die because when Jesus is on the inside, it makes all of the difference, church. He has the ability to take me from darkness to light. He has the ability to take me from a sinner to a saint. He has the authority to take this evil, wicked heart and do heart surgery on me and deliver me a new heart. Let me pause you for just a second because I want to make sure that you understand the gospel and you understand it in its fullness. The issue with some of the church is that we don't understand the holistic view of the gospel. We celebrate that Jesus died for our sin and indeed he did die for your sin. But not only did he die for you, church, he died to purchase you a new heart in a new life. And that same God that saves you is the same God that wants to walk with you. That same God who frees you from the sin debt is the same God who is working in you to sanctify you. So when we weep with those who weep, it is because he lives in us. When we become concerned, not only with the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup, it is because he lives in us. When husbands begin to love their wives as Christ loved the church, it is because he lives in us. When we begin to hate sin, 
It is because he lives in us. When we hunger for righteousness, it is because he lives in us. And when we love our neighbors as ourselves, it is because he lives in us. Church, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And he is alive in you by the Spirit. So my question to you is what do you see in the mirror? And some of us this morning may say, Dex, I see no Jesus. Come to him, and he will save you. I don't care if you're religious, non-religious. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. Whatever economic background you have, come to Jesus. Have your sins forgiven and receive a new heart.